Who's in charge of the Veterans Affairs Department police force? That's one question VA officials hope to settle as they struggle to reform VA's law enforcement arm. Government overseers say veterans and employees could be at risk in the meantime, and they're pressing the VA to sort out a confusing leadership structure that could be preventing the department from instituting other changes. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday reports. With about 5,000 officers and support staff, the VA police is among the 10 largest law enforcement organizations in the country. But the VA has struggled to recruit and retain officers, with low pay and benefits leading to high turnover and staffing shortages in recent years. Congress is also considering a bill that would require VA police to wear body cameras after an audit found they had incomplete data on use-of-force incidents. The mounting challenges come as more than 5,000 violent crimes were recorded on VA property last year, a 59% increase over the course of just two years. Lawmakers are now focusing on how governance challenges could be hampering efforts to modernize the VA police. New Hampshire Democrat Chris Pappas is chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee. In March of 1988, the Office of Special Counsel found that the VA police force was struggling without clear lines of authority and that VA needed to establish a central office to oversee VA police. Fast forward more than 30 years and VA is still struggling with instituting effective reforms. The VA Inspector General came to the same conclusions just two years ago and those recommendations largely remain unimplemented. I know the department recognizes that we must continue reforming and modernizing VA police. However, VA still has a confusing leadership structure causing many to wonder who's in charge. The IG says the governance issues comes down to confusion about the roles and responsibilities between two organizations, the Veterans Health Administration and the VA's Operations, Security, and Preparedness Branch. Leanne Seawright is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations at the VA. The confusion about program roles and authority has made it difficult for VA to have any degree of certainty that its police personnel and resources are being effectively deployed. Until proven actions are taken to address the OIG oversight recommendations, the safety of veterans and their families, VA personnel, and visitors to VA facilities will be affected. Lewis Ratchford is chief of the Operations, Security, and Preparedness Branch at the VA. Here's how he explained the governance structure to lawmakers. Ultimately, the person responsible for VA police is the secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs by law. Or policy and oversight and governance of the secretary's authorities that, that lies with the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Human Resources, Administration, Operating Security Preparedness. The operational responsibility of that mission established by VA policy belongs to the Veterans Health Administration. But it's ultimately that split in governance that has lawmakers frustrated with how the VA police is overseen. Jack Bergman, Republican congressman from Michigan, says it's the Achilles heel of the VA police. This is bureaucracy 101, disparate governing officer causing confusion regarding program roles and officer responsibilities. As the modernization efforts continue, I want to see the roles and responsibilities of each office clearly defined so that police officers from a recruit to a senior chief of police can clearly identify and navigate these chains of command. The Veterans Health Administration is rolling out a new staffing model to guide medical facilities and their hiring decisions, including for police. But Seawright says local facility directors are the ones who ultimately make the resourcing decisions. So the staffing model, in theory, is a a good solution moving ahead. However, one of the challenges that the facilities face is the funding at each facility and how that facility director chooses to apply that funding to their workforce. 
So while a staffing model could say that a facility needs 27 people, it's really up to the director and whether they're going to apply the resources to pay for those 27 people. VA officials say they involve police in budgeting decisions. Tammy Zarnecki is Deputy Undersecretary for Health Operations at the VHA. We have staffing models in various programs in our organization. Our chief of police is a service line chief at the medical center who submits a budget request through his medical center director. So the the tool is there to direct and guide on what appropriate staffing levels are. And workforce management will assure that the staffing level is being addressed. And from an operational standpoint, it's the responsibility of the organization to make sure that there is sufficient budget allocated to the medical center. The VA is trying to make some other big changes to how it recruits and retains police officers. Last year, it started a new nationwide recruitment push. It's also changed how position descriptions work for officers, allowing them to move more easily through the government's general schedule pay scales. The VA is also bumping officers' pay by authorizing special salary rates to help compete with other law enforcement jobs. But lawmakers are concerned that's just a temporary fix to a long-standing problem. Here's Bergman again. I applaud VA for taking this step to retain the poli- its police officers, but with 82% of the entire force receiving special salary rates, I am concerned with the sustainability of supplemental pay and how VA will properly budget for the cost of police officers in the coming years. I understand that VA is evaluating modifications to both police officer pay and retirement benefits, but that no clear decisions have yet been made. Lawmakers are also pushing a bill that would recognize VA police as federal law enforcement officers under retirement rules, giving them access to better retirement benefits. Meanwhile, the VA police is also changing how it records use of force incidents after the Government Accountability Office found gaps in the data. Here's Katina Latham, acting director of GAO's physical infrastructure team. We found three data issues which collectively limited oversight. First, incomplete characterizing of the type of force used. Second, inaccurate data on the highest level of force used, and third, the potential for duplicate data entries. VA has taken some steps to address our recommendations to improve the completeness and accuracy of its data. VA officials accordingly are entering a use of force information into an interim data sharing site while they work to secure a new database. This site includes a dashboard with information, for example, on use of force incidents and whether the officer involved was investigated, and whether there was an administrative or adverse action taken against the officer. In June, the House passed legislation that would require all VA police officers to wear body cameras. The Senate is now working on companion legislation. Ratchford, from the Operations Security and Preparedness Branch at the VA, said the department is already working on a draft policy for its officers to wear body cameras. And we're looking at ways to resource body-worn cameras. As the VA believe, body-worn cameras is something that is essential to accountability for VA police. In the meantime, lawmakers say they want to convene a roundtable with chiefs of police and other associated staff from different VA facilities. Here's Bergman again. The question is, and it's kind of a rhetorical question not to be answered now, but how many more people, veterans and staff members within VA facilities, are we going to put in harm's way because we're evaluating procedures and getting programs into place? I don't, I don't see that as an acceptable alternative. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving 
our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and 
how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. 
Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.